Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Error 404, developer personality not found. It can be easy to say some people, especially developers, don't have a personality. This is far from the truth, as even the most robotic of people have some form of personality, even if it is robotic, though it may be difficult to understand. In this episode, we're going to discuss some difficult programmer personality types that you'll likely encounter and what advantages those personality types have. We'll also discuss what disadvantages they have and how to work better with them. But before we get started, Will, what's not been found for you today? Uh, Well, I don't know about not found. I got pulled into some AWS stuff at work because the guy they put on it is Java-based AWS Lambda functions. And the guy they put on it has never done anything with Lambda before. And last time I did anything with Java was some time ago. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I think I had met you at that point. Let's put it <laughs> So it was, it was back in college and it was all console-based. So yeah, we were able to get it set up working in three or four hours today. It was pretty nice because I didn't really think I was going to be able to do much to help. But I was actually able to help. But I felt pretty good about that. Other news, you came up here this weekend, so that was pretty cool. You got lots of planning done. You got your Christmas slash birthday present. Which I still haven't hooked up yet. I should have done that today. Yeah, it's large. So I just didn't want to have to take it down there. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, it saved me the the trip. So yeah, it's been pretty good. I've been really productive the last two or three days. I'm not sure exactly why. That's nice. Yeah. So how about you? I got a headache. I started last night and I was kind of like, we gotten on and worked on this. It started right before we got on and sort of built up. I thought, well, maybe I need to eat. So when we got off the call to work on this outline, I made some dinner. I ate that. Got a little bit better for a minute. I did some work. I was like, all right, I'm going to like relax a little bit and then go to bed. And it was just like I was trying to watch some Doctor Who and I just stopped watching and went to bed because it was hurting so much, like even after taking medication for it. So I did that. Usually sleeping will get rid of it, but I woke up this morning and still there. So I called out sick to work, stayed in bed for a few extra hours thinking, all right, I'll just sleep it off. Did not go away. I had to go to the doctor for to get some lab work. So I went ahead and Went and did that, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's basically been my day. In other news, I've been, uh, I think I, I was telling you how great Contentful was recently. Now I'm running into an issue with it where I created a new entity, but it's not showing up in the Gatsby GraphQL. Like, I've done a Gatsby clean. I've done everything I possibly can. Is there a permissions issue where it's not visible to that token? No, I don't think so. There's nothing I can find that is any different from the other stuff that is visible. It's just anything new that I create is not showing up. That's pretty weird. Yeah. So what I might... I just had a thought. Um, When you said that, I could create a new API key and see if that fixes the problem. Glad I could help. (laughs) Yeah. Literally, that idea just hit me. Yeah, my offhand comments seem to be of use today. I'm not sure why that is. I just, I say I can. I'm like, can I create a new one? We probably need to get on with the episode, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, I can create a new one. So yeah, yeah, I'll try that. That actually might fix my problem. So that's pretty awesome. All right, thank you. Saving money is hard, especially when you're constantly playing with new content management systems. So true. Oh, so true. Especially if you have to pay for them. Yeah. Yeah. With great power comes great Azure bill. Pretty much. 
Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, his focus is on helping you to not only establish a real plan, but to take action on that plan so that you can create the kind of life that you want to live. I guess investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. With the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making those better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. So it's not too early to start, even right now. Mm -hmm. And best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. What that means is he's not here to sell you a product, but instead to guide you to a better financial situation. And you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably face. And he also interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their own careers. And you can learn even more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. So this is episode number 404, hence the title and topic. Technically, it's our 405th episode because we zero indexed. And then there was that one that we tossed. So that makes it 406. And then there's the aftercast. And then there's that one we recorded that we weren't able to use because the audio was really bad. <laughs> I'm not talking about the number of episodes that we've... Yeah. we've I'm talking about yeah, our number of episodes that have been published. This is the 405th right. episode published. Yeah. Yes. Even though it's episode number 404 because we did do that episode zero, Hello World. Yeah. It's almost to being I'm a teapot. Yes. Almost. Almost there. Actually, maybe past it. If you're counting episodes that we have actually recorded... Probably. I wouldn't count aftercasts because they're not episodes. So almost all development work today is done on teams due to the complexity of our work and the sheer volume of it. As time has gone on, development work has become more intensely collaborative and throwing work over the wall, so to speak, has been acknowledged as being a terrible idea. Pretty much is. As a result, the personalities of your coworkers has become more and more important. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on your perspective, developers exhibit a lot of unique personalities and quirks that are common in the larger population, but often have their own unique spin. It's important to realize that most personality quirks, no matter how irritating or how useful, are there because they do serve a purpose at some point. Sometimes a personality trait was useful in dealing with a dysfunctional environment in a previous workplace or in childhood, for that matter. And sometimes a personality trait is currently useful in your current environment. Personality is often closely tied to emotional reactions to a situation. And as a result, you often find that you have to address those emotions in order to work well with a person with certain personality traits. And by the way, they have to do the same with you. Well, Extreme versions of personality traits are often a serious problem. More milder versions of certain personalities can still create some difficulties in a work environment, both at the individual and at the team level. The trouble is a lot of these personality characteristics are extremely useful in specific circumstances. So you probably don't want to cause someone to change their personality completely all the time. Sometimes it is required, though. Yeah. Instead, you want to figure out a way to work with them so that you get the upsides while avoiding the downsides. And in some cases, their personality will change over time. But that's something that's their choice and not yours. It's like working with someone who suffers from addiction. It's their choice. And it, like this is something that we learned you know, when I was doing addiction counseling is they're not going to change for somebody else. They have to change for themselves. Right. And you just have to learn how to either work with them or avoid them in the meantime. So in this episode, we're going to talk about some developer personality types that can create a bit of a challenge in a work environment. We'll begin with the characteristics of, you know, the various sorts of, I would say, extreme personality types and then discuss the upsides and downsides that that personality type provides. 
Finally, we'll discuss how you can deal with them in a more strategic manner while still respecting their individual contribution to the team and as well as having good boundaries. Mm -hmm. So starting out with everybody's favorite or the one who has their favorite, I guess, is the fanboy. And, you know, having recently switched to Linux, I'm quite aware of the phenomenon. I wouldn't know anything about that. Recording on your Mac. (laughs) Write an entire episode about switching to Mac or anything like that. Yeah. So basically a fanboy is characterized by liking one framework, operating system, language, or platform well above all others and generally being pretty loud about it. So this is more like, this isn't like, okay, Linux works better for me for what I'm doing. So I'm switching to Linux. This is like everybody else switched to Linux. And so that kind of mindset where it's, where it's over the top and you, you don't feel like you can have a reasonable conversation with a person. And, and with most dysfunctional personality types, this also stems from a useful functional personality type taken to the extreme. The, hey, Linux works better for me in what I'm doing or something like that. So I'm going to switch to it and, oh, wow, it really works a lot better. And it sort of like builds on that. I personally have had to avoid the the Mac fanboy because I really do like Mac better. Yeah. And I really like Linux better. And it's, I think we can both agree, better than Windows. Yes. On either count. And you have to be somewhat careful to go, okay, this is better for me versus, hey, this is better for everybody. And you're just wrong if you pick the other thing. That's more of the fanboy type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, up to a certain point when you're talking about, hey, this is better for everyone doing a particular style of work. Right. Because, I mean, well, like, definitely, if you have to mess with Docker on Linux, it's great. If you have to do it on Windows, you just punched yourself in the face before you started. Yeah, I can absolutely believe that. Actually, you punched your memory in the face, technically. So, some of the benefits of the fanboy are the, they become experts in whatever tool their choices in, like what, whatever they're, they're a fan of, they know it really well and can be a great asset when you do have to work in that. And you're like, Oh, Hey, let me reach out to this person and ask them for help on what are the, the Mac shortcut keys. I have a, a former coworker we used to work together who I uh, is pretty much a Mac fanboy. And uh, I reached out to him a lot when I first switched over to Mac. We were working together at the time. So like a lot of times this was before I went remote. And so I'll go over to his desk. I'm like, Hey, how do you do this? How do you do this? <laughs> and he was very patient with me because he was very excited to see someone else on Mac in the office. So of course there are some downsides. Fanboys often fail to consider or even learn anything about other options. And frequently they have a remarkable ability to ignore any problems with the option that they're using. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you spent that much on a Mac, you, you're going to try to ignore all the problems. Yeah. I mean, and it's the same thing on Linux, right? Like I really like it. There are some issues around audio. It was not a whole lot of fun on a distribution that is specifically made for creatives and people that do recording to get all my audio stuff even working. That was a pain. And so I'm not, you know, going to look past that, which is, you know, one of the things that makes it where I'm not a fanboy. You know, it just happens to work pretty well for me now. You were telling me all about that. I'm like, yeah, it's that would not be worth my time. I like the plug and play. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing I, I think the thing for me is that the Windows downsides got bad enough. Yeah. That I just, I was like, I can't handle this anymore. That makes sense. Now, when you're working with a fanboy, remember that most of the time they got that way because they found something that really worked well for them and they dove into it. So you're going to have to prove that your ideas will work well for them as well as their ideas. And basically, hey, you know, or just show them, you know, hey, that's what works for you. And this is what I've done in the past, which is, hey, that works great for you, but that's not what I have. And I can't go out and buy a new system right now. I don't have the finances for that. So can you help me? Like, we got to work with what I've got or not everybody agrees with you. 
we can't buy everyone in the organization a Mac. So we have to also develop for them to use a Windows machine. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing that is a really salient point here is that when somebody is a fanboy and they find something that works well for them and they like it, when they tell you about it, this is something that is typically, they're telling you to help you. For the most part, it's it's not necessarily for their own validation. It's legitimately, hey, they're, they think this is better and they want things to be better for you. There's some groups of fanboys that I would probably differ with on that, on some of those things. But for the most part, they're coming at it honestly. And so I, yeah. I don't, you know, you don't want to bash them too hard. It's just got to rein them in. Speaking of things that need to be reined in, the <laughs> next uh, group is the opposite of that. Uh, and that is the hater. And these people are characterized by an intense dislike of one framework, operating system, language, or platform, and they're usually loud about it. I will say that I firmly classify as a Windows hater at this point. Yes, yes, you do. That said, they could fix very few things and probably make it where I'm neutral. Yeah. I wouldn't call myself a Windows hater. I'm more of a Windows mocker. Like, I'm not quite at the hater level. I, I just like to make fun of Windows because I use Windows some. Yeah, I do during my work day. But I mean, for my own stuff, it's really hard to put up with it. I guess it's more like I feel relieved that I escaped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of the benefits of the hater personality type is that they know some of the easily reached pitfalls of the tool that they disdain. Like, they really know why they dislike it. Yeah. They hit the wall at some point and something was over the top. And so you do want to ask haters, you know, hey, what is your objection to this? Yeah. And just see what they say and see if it resonates with you. Because otherwise, you're going to get in there and you're going to be the next hater when you run into the same thing and you've wasted time. A lot of times you'll have a person who's both a fanboy and a hater. Yeah, they love to hate it. Well, no, they're a fanboy of one thing and a hater of the other. Yeah. I mean, you learn you run into this with gamers all the time between console and PC or even between consoles. And I'm just like, because I was talking to someone the other day about uh, they're saying they need to get an, a PS5. And I was like, yeah, you can always go the Xbox route and play some Halo with me. And they're like, went off about how much they can't stand Xbox. I'm like, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've switched back and forth between Xbox and PlayStation several times throughout their lifetimes. And uh, it doesn't even phase me. The only thing that's really stuck around has been Nintendo. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm, I'm on PC with mine. And, you know, the thing that gets me is how many games I can't play that I used to play. But I can still play my Nintendo games from the 80s. So there we go. The downside of the haters, though is that a lot of times they don't actually build enough knowledge of the thing that they hate to actually use the thing effectively or to understand any of the idioms that are used in it. A great example of this is plenty of people that just actively despise any your JavaScript framework of the day, whatever that happens to be. Mm -hmm. Well, have you built an app in it? Well, no, I tried to build, I tried playing around with it for a couple hours and decided I didn't like it. It's like, well, you'd really you don't actually grok the design decisions that are in there. I mean, good grief. I still don't on, and I've been doing Angular for years. And there's still some stuff I don't even understand about like how it works. Yeah. So a lot of stuff I don't understand about how it works. I'm still learning a lot. And I've been doing React recently. And I'm like, some of it I like, some of them like, you know, it'd be easier to do this in Angular just because I know how to do it there. Yeah. I've really, for the most part, I've, I have liked React, but every so often I'll like shake my head a little bit and I feel like I'm looking at InterDev for just a split second. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like I just feel like that's what it would have got, you know, cause you've got the inline templates and the logic all together. And I'm just like, yeah, it's so weird to me. Cause I mean, I really, like, I do really like it, but man, you can do that with Angular, but it's not the way it's designed. Like it's designed to have a separate template file. And so that that throws me off about. And I used to really like that. I, that was one of the things I liked about Angular. I'm like, why is all this stuff in one file? This is awful. And then I worked on a large Angular code base and I was like, oh, that's why. <laughs> it was real quick. So when you're working with haters, you want to try and find out what it is that they hate about whatever the thing they hate or dislike it and why. 
you'll need to address those things to convince them to use it or to build to it or whatever. Because going back to it, if they're a Linux or a Mac fanboy, they're probably a Windows hater. Or, or if they're a Windows user, they're probably a Windows hater. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of anyone who's like, I'm, I've met like maybe one Mac hater. And it was because they hadn't used a Mac in like 20 years. And so like they got that area of time when the when Apple was like not good. Yeah, like OS 9 or whatever. Yeah. Like that's, you know, we had in college. I remember having to fiddle with those things and it was, it definitely left a impression. I'll also say with, with the hater types, a lot of times when you ask them what they don't like about something, sometimes you'll hear just like a really well-articulated, this is why this is wrong. This is, here's the second order effects of this thing that they're doing. And then you're like, okay, well, that's actually pretty reasonable. Sometimes you'll get something that is like a really shallow impression it's like okay you slammed into something that is nasty because you try to use the tool in a way that it's not meant for a great example of that is somebody that goes into javascript development that tries to tries to treat it like it's a strongly typed language mm-hmm. and they get burned by loose typing it's like well yeah because it doesn't do that and a lot of times you can just go oh let me show you how to work around this problem and they may find that the flexibility is actually something they like. And a lot of times those same people give them a year or two and they actually don't want the strong type system anymore. Yeah, that's true. I can understand that. Switching from doing mostly C sharp to mostly, I mean, TypeScript, but you can kind of get away without it with the looser typing. Yeah. And you can also do that in .NET, right? It's come in. Yeah. Yeah. I've more and more gotten to where I really like the the way I'm able to approach things in just raw JavaScript mm-hmm. until I do something that I think is clever and have to touch it six months later. And then that's not so hot. Yeah. So the next is the architecture astronaut. And this personality type is characterized by always trying to make things scalable, configurable, and they tend to want to use the latest technology and design patterns everywhere even when contraindicated. Yeah. Now, there is a benefit um, because you do often need things to be scalable and configurable. So it's really useful to have somebody involved, a lot of times even from the beginning, who is thinking about this stuff before you know you hit something. Because they go, hey, this thing isn't going to scale. If you know we get 10x the number of users, this is going to fall right over. It's really nice to know that, and maybe you can make a fairly small pivot at that point to make the thing where it is capable of scaling later, you know, instead of painting yourself into a corner. That's real handy. Now, some of the downsides are if something isn't intended to scale or you don't know how it will need to scale yet, this person will still probably push you to implement architecture patterns that are not useful yet if they're ever going to be useful. So they're going to push for things that you're either your code base isn't ready for, you don't need, or don't make sense in the code base. A lot of times where I've run into this is someone around mid-level. I mean, this is I went through this at mid-level too, where I was trying to do do all the especially the design pattern, because that what was the I don't, it wasn't new hotness, but that's what was big in my sphere of influence, I guess, at the time was design patterns. And so I was trying to make everything like design patterns scalable and as generic as possible, even when it didn't need to be. Yeah. Well, and another great example of that is if you're in a startup situation and you're trying to make a minimum viable product and one of your devs is pushing microservices, unless you have a particularly pathological situation that's probably what this person is. Yeah. Because that's not what you need. You need to get something out so you can test it and iterate. The way you deal with this person really depends a lot on where you are in the organizational structure. If they are kind of below your level, you're, you need, just need to be direct and explain yourself, but just be like, hey, look, we don't need that right now. And here's why. So that they can make better decisions in the future. They can learn from you and you have to do it in in the right way, like a non-accusatory, a non... The way I found helpful is to is to be like, hey, that's that's a really good idea, but I don't think we're going to scale that way. 
it's an interesting thought if we run into that. So let's talk about that more so that you can still help teach them and help them grow, which is what they're trying to do. But it's like, hey, they're not putting it in the product. What I find is uh, useful when they're below you in the organizational, especially when it's like a junior, junior to mid-level, they're like right at that range, is to ask them why why they want to do that, why they think it, it belongs there. Because if you've got a good one, one that's going to really advance in their career, they'll start thinking about it and go, or they'll, they'll talk themselves out of it, basically. But if you've got one who may need a little bit more guidance, they're going to say, well, it's this design pattern. And so you that's when you can come in and go, hey, you know, you can start training them on the when to use patterns and when not to. And the purpose of the design patterns is to simplify software development, not complicate it. Yeah. And if they're at the same level as you, you kind of have to be a little bit more careful because you're not their manager. You have to kind of advise and actually have conversations at a peer level. That takes a little bit more effort too. If they're higher up than you, that's a much bigger problem because they can just override you. Um, I've been in that situation a couple of times where there was somebody that was just making pattern soup out of stuff that there was no need. It's like, hey, you, you know, you've got 400 users. Uh, you get this crazy pluggable architecture that can handle, you know, RPC, XML, SOAP, opening sockets, message queues, it can do all kinds of stuff. And it's completely pluggable. And it's like, dude, you could have released this thing in six months instead of taking four years. You got those kind of people. The best way to deal with that is to start asking questions about the scaling decisions and characterize it as, okay, how did you get to this decision? Because I'm, I'm trying to understand how to do this sort of stuff better. Because mm-hmm. you may find also that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. That is very true. There may be very valid reasons for doing things that way. But uh, one thing that I have I have pointed out to people, and this works really well with people at the same level as you, is that uh, it doesn't fit the rest of the code. Um, it also works with if you're leading senior developers. And that's where I've also used it where it's like, all right, I'm the lead, but the person I'm leading has more experience than me. You know what I mean? So I'm above them in the organizational structure, but really they're more knowledgeable than I am. And so the questions and also pointing out, hey, this is really cool, but it doesn't exactly match the rest of the code. And six months from now, eight months from now, are you going to remember that you changed this one area of code and you did this pattern here and that pattern over there? Yeah. Or what happens when you get that job at Amazon? Yeah. And the rest of us are sitting here looking at this. Right. And so it's like, I had had to do that too, where I've said to someone, hey, this is really brilliant, neat code. It took me about 20 to 30 minutes to figure out what these four lines did. So let's make it so a junior developer can figure it out because I'm a lead developer and it took me 20 to 30 minutes to figure out what four lines of code did. We need to make this simpler so that other people can pick it up faster than that. Yeah, I will say I'm a little bit cautious at times. I know what you meant by saying he'll make it so a junior dev can understand it. But when somebody says that in a work environment, one of the things says, yeah, but a junior has got people they can ask. You know, if they get in over their head. Yeah. I'm a little cautious about, I'll typically go, hey, let's make it so a mid can understand it, a mid-level. Because you're not a junior that long. Okay, well, I guess I should also point out we don't have mid-level. Uh, well, yeah. So it's either junior or, or advanced with their senior. So a junior is a mid-level. Gotcha. Well, and you guys probably, well, actually, I, I know pretty well. You guys have got a fairly stringent process. Like your juniors are not as raw as some people's juniors are. Yeah, no. That's another thing too. So that makes a difference because I've worked at some places where the junior developer, I feel like maybe learned in the last six, eight weeks. And they got a job somehow. You know, they can't even type reasonably quick. So it, it also depends on your definitions there. So speaking of things that uh, depend on your definitions quite a bit, the next, you know, kind of archetypal thing, I guess, would be the hack fountain. And I couldn't come up with a better way to put this, but this is a person who is characterized by always trying to make something work right now with the intention of fixing it later. So this is, you know, kind of a stress response, just, 
that has become a personality. Uh, they favor really quick release over long-term maintenance in general. Yeah, and this isn't exactly a bad thing. None of these are bad. No, it absolutely isn't. They are handy. Yeah, and so this person is really handy if things are broken and they need to be fixed quickly. If you need a hot fix going into production, then this is the person you want because they can just knock it out. They are really good at that. Yeah, there is a substantial downside, as in most things. First of all, there is nothing as permanent as a temporary hack. If this person's quick fix code survives longer than you would expect it to, it's going to generate maintenance issues and frustration for other members of the team later on. It's pretty much inevitable, right? Because a, a quick fix is like, hey, I'm patching this so it doesn't fall apart in the next 10 minutes, not so that it's going to be here in 100 years. So when dealing with this, just like the architecture astronaut, it really depends on where you are in the organizational structure. So if you are a lead or senior developer mentoring the, the person who's doing this, one of the things you can really do is to put them in a role that does more support and like maybe put them on a support team for a while and have them doing these as their main job. I mean, one of the things that's going to do is it's really going to make them love their job or get them overdoing this really quickly. And they'll want to get like they'll want to start making those longer term fixes because they'll run into their own quick patches soon. Yeah. I've seen that play out rather spectacularly once or twice. <laughs> right. Right. If they're really low level, like some pair of programming and mentoring can help with that too. If they're at the same level, then get them involved in fixing or cleaning up, I should say, the hacks. So if they threw together this last minute hot fix that just had, it had to be done fast. There wasn't a, an option about it, but then they kind of got into that groove. Whenever you run across one that you have to fix, call them up and ask them for help on it. Be like, hey, I see you were the last one in here. I could really use some help understanding kind of like what was going on here. Do you mind like hopping on a call with me and working through this with me? Because once they've seen the consequences of it, that's the big thing here is like help them to see the consequences. A lot of times the reason that they continue to do this is because there hasn't been consequences for doing it. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, you also want to look and go, okay, why do they feel like this is the correct approach? Because it's either trying to get something done quick and trying to get things, you know, too much stuff done, or they feel like that's what's expected. And so you, you kind of got to get away from that. If they're above you, you kind of want to position yourself as the person who makes the high quality fixes to their patches. Yeah, because then at some point they're going to notice that, hopefully, and then they'll approach you. Yeah. you got to draw them in. Or, you know, hey, you know they're going to keep writing hacks and you're going to get pretty used to it. And you'll be able to mitigate those and have a fairly predictable life. Right. At worst. So the next one is the overworker. And this is characterized by always being willing to go above and beyond for the workplace, even at the expense of their personal time. The overworker will often fix things at night and on the weekends. Oh man, I have heard stories about uh, a developer. So he was working there when I started and he, he moved on, but I uh, helped finish up a project he was on when he uh, transferred. But uh, this was when I first started as a junior developer. This guy was senior dev, but he was one of these types. And he completely rewrote the database one weekend on a project because he wanted to switch to using a different ORM. And so he just redid the whole thing. And yeah, that's the type. Yeah, and it is valuable at, at times. I mean, there there are benefits. They probably do a lot to keep the system stable and running, especially in really messed up environments. This is the difference between everything falling over and not. And they really have a lot of pride in their loyalty and their willingness to spend the time that it takes to get things done. Yeah, I mean, like loyalty is valuable, right? 
And it's not something that you should just be flippant about bailing on your work. And I'm not necessarily a fan of absolutely turning off everything at five o'clock. You know, sometimes there's stuff going on. It's like, okay, I probably ought to stick around. But on the other side of it, you don't want to make that pathological. This is where somebody's gone past that point and stayed there. It's one thing to be like, hey, I'm really, I'm working on this. And yeah, it's coming up on because my work day ends at 4.30. It's like, it's coming up on 4.30, but you know, I've almost got this working. I, you know, just have like a handful of things more and I, this is going to work and, you know, we can move forward after this starts working. So yeah, sometimes I'll stick around for an extra 15 or 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, but I'm not going to, and because I've been the guy, I've been the overworker and I'm not going to do that. I remember, well, this was a few years ago, I was dating someone and she was like, I don't understand how like 4.30 hits and you can just be, I'm done. Because I was already working at home, you know, this was pre-COVID. So I was already working remote four days a week then. And I was like, 4.30 or 5, whenever my workday ended, it was like, all right, I'm done. And just walk away. And I was like, you have to. Because otherwise, you're going to stay in it all the time. Also, for me, it helped working in the hospitals because you just literally had to be like, I'm leaving work at work and I'm not carrying it with me afterward. Yeah. Like you just have to be able to step away. So speaking of that, the the downsides to being the overworker. One, they can set the standard for the rest of the team and that standard is overwork. Also, people make mistakes. We make a lot of mistakes when we're tired. Yeah, I think there was some studies done that showed that working more than so many hours really slowed slowed production down because you made more mistakes and spent more time fixing those mistakes than if you had actually just worked fewer hours and did better quality work. Yeah, and it's insidious with developers too because it's almost like gambling past the 40-hour mark because sometimes you hit the jackpot and you do. You just like, like, yeah, I can roll through another five, six hours of code after I get done with work and it's a great day. And the next time you try it, everything falls over. Yep. You know, it's like that that intermittent reward thing that you really have to be careful about. Mm-hmm. It gets you in trouble. Also, they tend to prop up other unsustainable practices simply because they work enough hours to overcome them. Yeah. So things like having half your day chewed up with meetings and interruptions. Well, yeah. if one of your coworkers is working, you know, an extra three or four hours a day after everybody leaves or before everybody gets there, it doesn't hurt their productivity, but it, you know, yours is absolutely destroyed unless you destroy your personal life. And that's a bad thing to put on a team really gets them. And it's rough on the organization too, because that person will leave and suddenly the unsustainable practice just hits the wall that has always been there. I've been there quite a few times. Honestly, like the, the running joke is, you know, get them a video game, you know, a new video game or something to do or get them a girlfriend. And that's, that's like the running joke. Or a boyfriend, you know, depending. Yeah. You know, but honestly, a lot of the overwork stuff does not come from necessarily the best place. A lot of times it's, there's a reason for it. They're afraid they'll lose their job or, you know, they're afraid that their company will go under. You know, if they're one of the owners, they may be working like that. It could be a money thing. They get paid overtime and they're upside down financially. You know, it could be bad expectations set by management or that they set on themselves. And it could just be personal drama. You know, I've worked with people that were going through bad divorces and they were in the office all the time. I'll say this on the financial thing. I worked all the overtime because we we needed it. And we, we did like a, a death march there for a bit. But all that extra income helped me pay off some debt, which was really nice. So I get it. It's just you got to understand... And they have to understand that this sets expectations for other people who may just not be able to do that. They're just not in a good place. Now, the next type on here is the coaster. Let's have a quick disclaimer about the whole quiet quitting thing. I do not like that phrasing. That is gaslighting. When people are doing the work they are told to do for the amount they're told to do it for, that's not quiet quitting. That's just not accepting wage theft. So just leaving that one there. But Coasting is a little bit different. Now, this is characterized by doing the absolute bare minimum required not to get fired. And these people tend to 
try to either avoid work or pawn it off on other people. And that latter one's really the more salient thing mm-hmm. because they're, they're trying to do the, the minimum that they can get away with, you know, versus, Hey, this is what I'm required to do. I'm not required to do more than that. Yeah. This is basically the polar opposite of the overworker. And a lot of times what happens to the overworker? It's after the overworker. Yeah. It's, it's the same person after they get burnt out. Now, some of the benefits of this is these people will often get a lot done by avoiding excess or useless work. They're only doing the things that they need to be doing. So that's usually where this starts is, hey, I'm not going to do the excess. And they're very good at pointing out where time and effort are being wasted. So Will's good at this. I wouldn't call him a coaster, but he is very good at pointing out where time and effort are being wasted, mainly because he's an overworker and he doesn't want to waste time on that other stuff. But, you know. (laughs) I want to overwork on my stuff, not your stuff, buddy. Right, right, right. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's sort of like this is the other side of the same coin as the overworker. And it's what happens to overworkers when they eventually burn out. Yeah, or they've been through three or four burnouts and they have an abundance of caution. I right. really don't like that phrase because most people that say it are not being actually cautious. They're just being scared. Now, there are downsides. Of course. Sometimes people that are coasting are flat out wrong about which effort is wasted. Great example of this is situations where you're on an agile team and you don't update the Kanban board because, oh, that's a waste of my time. It's like, yeah, but the rest of the team kind of needs that to not start the story that you just finished. Yeah, you know, those kind of things. And this can also be a huge problem if you've got other people that look up to those people. So they see one person who is like they're ignoring stuff that they don't think is important. And you got somebody that's a little bit more junior that doesn't know how the pieces fit together. And they ignore the stuff that they don't think is important or just feel that they can ignore whatever they want. That can be an issue on a team. Yeah, especially when it's like not made clear, you know, what is and isn't important. This reminds me of when I was much younger, my first time in any kind of management role. I wasn't given any training. I was just sort of thrown into it. And I had seen other managers, like, because we were kind of given a little bit of uh, freedom in our scheduling. And I'd seen other managers go, hey, I'm taking the afternoon off to go to a doctor's appointment or this or that. And what I didn't know is, oh, there was this whole process that nobody told me about for getting clearance from upper management. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah, so I got in trouble because my sister was coming to visit. And I was like, all right, hey, I'm taking off after lunch today. I'll make the time up later this week. And yeah, I got in trouble for it. And I'm like, nobody told me that. And they just expected me to know it. I'm like, uh, no. No, I've seen other people do this. I was like, well, so-and-so did it. Yeah. Like, yeah, but they got permission. I was like, okay, but nobody told me that's what I needed to do. All I knew was I did exactly the same thing as this other person did. And so, yeah, there was there was that. And then they kind of like went back on their, what they had said about letting me go to class. Like I got in trouble for being in class one day and I'm like, yep, nope. That's when I put in my two-week notice was yeah. after I got in trouble for being in class. And I'm like, uh, no, this is this job was literally for me to uh, to do that. And of course, I had gotten like laterally moved into management, not that I had tried to. So anyway, that was fun. So with the coasters, you want to find out why they're coasting. Is it because they just came off a death march two months ago and they're just sort of resting right now and their output's going to pick back up in a few more months? Or does their output match the expectations and they're just not meeting your expectations? Yeah, or they're not doing visible stuff that looks like they're working. They're just going, okay, here's the thing I'm judged on. I don't really care if you see me at my desk or not. And by the way, that's a fairly reasonable way to go through life, honestly, if you can get away with it, because you probably aren't paid for sitting at your desk. Hopefully, you're paid for some value you provide. 
So speaking of trying to provide value, the next one is the idea guy. And this is something you run into a lot in different, especially like startup type environments. These people are characterized by always having ideas for what the system could do, but not necessarily having ideas for stabilizing the existing system or for handling the existing operation of the system. Their mind is always on the future. It's on what we could do next, not, hey, what am I doing right now? Yeah. Now, these guys aren't all bad. They often have good ideas for where the system is going and where it can go. And these tend to be very useful for the team for clarifying what the stakeholders' intentions are. Yeah, especially when those intentions aren't laid out because that person will go, oh, well, that that may mean that they're going to do this other thing. That's a really good idea. And then, you know, that is actually useful to try to think about. It's just when they distract the team. So Mm -hmm. that kind of comes into the downsides because sometimes their ideas are absolute crap. And ideas without implementation are often very, very distracting because you'll hear, you know, junior developers, especially that are you know new to development, they're not cynical yet. They will be soon. Uh, they'll hear this and they'll be like, oh, that's what we're going to do. And so they start kind of planning on it and that ends up not happening. And they're like, well, I just wasted all this effort and all this thought trying to make the system where it could handle Joe's big idea over here. And, you know, and Joe's like, well, I wasn't serious about that. It's just, you know, an idea throughout. Yeah, yeah, I know. I had to had to point out this wasn't even with a junior developer, but uh, I think we we discussed this a few weeks ago. But uh, one of our advanced, our senior developers, basically, we all go to the the stakeholder review, and they had talked about making some changes to the way one of the pages was designed. And so, in his daily stand up. He said, yeah, I've gotten uh, I've gotten all this done, but now I'm making these changes based on that, those comments. And we're like, dude, there's a story for that, those changes. You don't have to make them in this one that's outside the scope of this story. And like he was very relieved to find out that he didn't have to do all that because we didn't even have a, a design for it and he wasn't sure exactly how he was going to do it. And had he was like, I had a bunch of questions about that. I was like, well, we don't even have to worry about it, man. So that was funny. But like he was trying to do that. And he's not even a junior. He's like a, a senior developer. He was just, he was trying to do what he thought was the right thing. And I was like, oh no, man, we got a story for that. You do your thing and we'll fix the way it looks later when that story comes up. So, yeah. Yeah, and when you're, when you're working with these people, you, you really need to set up a path for them to present their ideas without distracting the team. Right. You don't ever want to cut that off. You don't don't ever kill somebody else's creativity. Right. But don't allow it to come into your space and kill your ability to get things done either. It's a good balance you have to have there. Yeah. And you know, the thing is you either have to give them an outlet for it or they're either going to get burnt out and coast or they're gonna leave. It may even be worthwhile to help them get into a position where they can be in charge of something with more responsibility. You know, if they're an idea person, let them take an idea and run with it within reason. You know, maybe even let them do a side project or uh, we have lab days where people can work on their own stuff. Sometimes we collaborate on things. Most people use it for training. I've kind of done a little bit of mix. I've done some collaboration. I've built some stuff. I've done some training. I've fixed some things. It just sort of depends when like with that. So guys, the the final one we're going to talk about is the Code Monkey. Wasn't that a TV show? Anyway. Might be. Yeah, it was characterized by a desire to just keep their heads down and work. Uh, These people are the backbone of any successful development team. Uh, This is a common stepping stone for mid-level developers, but it does need to be overcome as you become more senior. Like this is the hard worker, the just like to the grindstone person. Yeah. And even when you're senior, it's fun to get your head down and code. Right. I mean, I did a bunch of stuff this weekend and it was a blast because there was nobody bugging me asking for updates on tickets or anything else. You know, I could just work and it it was great. So you still get away with it as a senior. You just got to, you know, you got to make sure that you are doing it appropriately. So there are some real benefits. These people do get a lot of stuff done. They don't sit around speculating. They're not mired in minutiae. They just go. They find the work. They crush it. Mm-hmm. And that makes them very, very reliable, 
especially from a project management perspective, because you know, hey, I give this person eight hours worth of work. Within 10 hours, it's probably going to get done. Yeah. Now, some of the downsides, though, is they often are heads down to the point that they don't interact with others much. Over the short term, this is productive. Over time, however, their isolation makes them less able to be effective because they really don't understand what's going on in the community and in the project itself. Yeah. I mean, that communication with other team members is critical. You know, when I was writing the book on remote work, that was one of the big criticisms of it was that people that are, yeah, that are remote tend to kind of lose, lose contact and not be as good as they were five years ago. I think that has since played out and people realize that's not the truth, but in an office environment, if you disconnect like this over time, it will get you. So the trick for these people is you need to set up a, well, think about it a better way. Set up a scenario where they are working on full vertical slices of the app or systems level stuff like tech debt. This kind of pushes them towards thinking about larger interactions in the system instead of just the place they're currently working on where they have all the expertise. If there are unknowns in there, they have to go to other people. And this will completely avoid this tendency. If you don't overcome this in yourself, by the way, this is a way to basically put a cap on your promotion. There's, there's a certain point that you can't get past without other people. So just something to bear in mind. So guys, there are a lot of personality types in development that can create problems in team dynamics. But it's important to realize that these personality types are there for a reason and that they serve as an adaptation to a specific environment. When encountering or embodying these personality characteristics, it's important not only to see how they annoy you and cause problems, but also to see where that viewpoint is useful. It's also very useful to figure out how to engage with that viewpoint, both to help with team dynamics and to help the individual growth of team members. That's pretty much all we've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.